morning. Welcome to The Old School, a podcast about, well, really a whole mess of things. Education, philosophy, uh, culture, travel, food, um, sports. Maybe we'll do a sports episode one day. Good morning here, Dr. Bourgeois. Hello, Herr Miller. Um, how, excuse me. How are you over there? Wherever uh, you are? I'm over here fine. Um, do you think we could pull off a sports episode? A sports? Well, we could, but we're right in the dog days of nothing right now. I mean, I've been watching old NFL games on the NFL network from the 1970s or whatever I can find because there's nothing to watch right now. Well, personally, I think that's a, a failing on your part. Uh, you seem to not understand that there is actually a lot going on right now. You're talking about the World Cup women's soccer? Or is that over? <laughs> That's most certainly not what I'm discussing. I'm talking about America's pastime. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're just dissing uh, women's soccer. A lot of people are watching that quite gleefully as we speak. It's probably like the final weekend. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't well, doubt it. I don't know. I don't know who's watching it. I do not have a, a hankering to watch it, but... Uh, that's, that's uh, odd here, Miller, because you love men's soccer. In fact, you're going to Europe shortly. Um, I don't know who's financing it, but you're like doing this tour of um, <laughs> soccer. And it's all men's soccer, so there, there must be something going on here. Well, I said that I don't have an issue with soccer per se, and I don't have an issue with women's soccer per se. Okay. I just, for whatever reason, I have not found myself in front of the television watching women's soccer, especially when there's so much baseball to think about. And I can't help but think that the reason why you neglect it to consider baseball, one, no doubt a personal failing, but two, <laughs> uh, but two, you're probably not in your right frame of mind right now. Maybe you're struggling with distress and discomfortability. Maybe you're struggling with depression, perhaps. You're talking about personal failings twice and now depression. What's going on here, Herr Miller? Well, like, I, like an I, intervention or something. I, well, it, maybe it is an intervention because I'm worried about you. Because <laughs> okay. your beloved Pac-12 is disintegrating in front of your eyes. And everything that you've known, everything that you thought was constant in the universe, the things that you held true and dear to your heart, is starting to flitter away. As Arizona now is a part of the Big 12, Arizona State right behind it because they have the same border regions, apparently. Uh, uh, Colorado, uh, it's, it's only a matter of time. Uh, so, uh, you know, USC, UCLA, they're already leaving. They're going to the Big 10. Um, what, what shall become of the Big Pac-12? Well, it, it's, it's supposed to be the Pac-8, um, and <laughs> that's what I grew up with. That's, I, I don't recognize Arizona or Arizona State, Colorado. Very um, fine it, people in those colleges. It's, it's four schools in California, and you know who they are. Um, there are two in Oregon and two in Washington. That's the Pac-8, and that's how it should be, and that's how uh, it always will be in my mind. 
Pack eight. Those four schools in California is one of them like the Santa Clara Banana Slugs. Or... Yeah, it's, it's Cal and Stanford, UCLA, USC. Those were the four, and then then you have the two great teams in Oregon, the perennial favorites, and then the terrible teams up in Washington that nobody really liked. There's football players at Cal. Get out of here. Uh, you know that. In <laughs> fact, uh, the great Aaron Rodgers went to Cal. That was like 50 years ago. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me something a little bit closer to the modern day. <laughs> oh, they, they have around quite a long time. And the, I don't know. I think maybe the Arizona teams were the first in, but I still don't know how they made an agreement with with Utah. And Colorado just moves moves with the wind. You know, they're one time over here, one time over there, so they never were going to stick anyway. That's uh, the marijuana. You have a hard time focusing when you're on pot. They didn't, have, they, they didn't have any of that. It wasn't invented 50 years ago. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Okay. I don't think so. I never heard what, it. What, Whatever were those hippies doing then? I don't well, know. I, I smelled a lot of that offhand. Yeah. <laughs> I never personally knew what that smell was. Jeez almighty. Well, what were you talking about here, Miller? But um, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not following these. These are rumors, right? Nothing has actually happened yet. No, the Arizona thing has happened. Uh, the Arizona state thing, it's presumed will happen within the next week or so. Colorado uh, is not definite, but a lot of people think Colorado will too jump to the Big 12. And, and what what's is interesting is that, the, say again? When does this all start? Does it start like on Monday or two years from now or when? I don't know when the actual date starts. I'm not quite sure, but um, it'll be interesting because I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people thought that when Texas and Oklahoma said they were leaving for the SEC, I think a lot of people just assumed that the Big 12 would like slowly disintegrate. They didn't seem to be very proactive, but they could find themselves as one of the big power conferences at this rate. At the rate Which they're one? going, you could see it. Which uh, I got confused as I was reading a headline. It says the Big Ten Council presidents, chancellors voted unanimously unanimously on Friday. That's just yesterday to approve Oregon and Washington to the conference effective August two, August second, twenty twenty four. So they're gonna. Well, they needed to do something. I told you it had to be <laughs> Oregon and Washington going in tandem. Well, it was your uh, text message to me that uh, made that happen. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, but um, why? So, who's left? I mean, is it just going to be Oregon State and Washington, Washington State? Washington State and the banana slugs and <laughs> San Diego. I don't know. So all this to say, there's a lot of sports going on right now, and so, oh, okay. Uh, so you don't have you don't have to content yourself with just reruns of old football games. Uh, there's well, a better world out there waiting for you to discuss to discover it. Well, it's 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 the wonderful world of uh, preseason NFL, hmm. which um, they re- I don't even know why they do it. And, but they, they certainly sell tickets and make money from it, but you can watch for about five minutes and realize I'm not watching this anymore. It is criminal that they charge money for preseason games. Yeah, they should give them away. Bring people in who don't usually go to football games. You know, Let them try it out. They probably never come back after watching that thing. I don't think it'll ever happen, but 
it does. It does. Uh, kind of conjure up um, a topic, though, and you know when you talk about uh, bleed spirits uh, at the onset of a season, typically we're talking baseball, the coming of spring, uh, something anew. Uh, fills <laughs> fills the heart, warms the cockles, and uh, makes Cockle? us feel like um, <laughs> makes us feel like there is indeed a god. Uh, gosh, so you're you're playing violin music <laughs> in the background as you, you talk, talk about what were you talking about again? You said cockles. You said uh, <laughs> I, I, you lost me on that. Well, here's here's where I'm going. So we're going to have a little philosophical discussion, and it came about as part of a discussion I had. Um, with a little, little class I teach with some other adults. Um, uh, and it had to do with the difference between hope and optimism. And the idea, and this would probably take a kind of a philosophical turn, and I don't know how you want to, and we could just see how it goes, develops organically. Um, well, what would you say is the definition of hope? I don't know. I'm, I'm a pessimist completely, Herr Miller. So these these things sound rather, rather similar. I'm, I would have trouble differentiating them myself. Hope, optimism. Well, I think it's, it means optimism. Um, so I, I think they are the same same thing. And as far as a definition. Um, it's a little bit too early in the day, so I'm going to let you take the first crack at hope. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little stuck on that because you threw in optimism, and it seems like it's the same thing. So what if I said that the difference between hope and optimism was that hope is typically, when it's expressed, uh, it typically is something that is without basis that it's more of a wish. It's more of a, a fervent desire that things turn out how you hope it will. Whereas optimism tends to be something expressed on the basis of evidence, possibility, some sort of reading of the tea leaves that leads us to believe that we have reasons to feel optimistic. Well, I, I think you're getting a little bit more nuanced. Um, I, I don't know if I, I mean, you hear of somebody being a cockeyed optimist. And so that that's like an extreme example of an, of optimism. But either one of them, I mean, I'm, I'm actually going to a boxing match tonight. And you, you've heard of Jake Paul and Nate Diaz because I talked to you about them at length on Thursday when we had breakfast. I remember the date well. It's like it happened <laughs> Um, but I'm not going to put, um, you know, a thousand dollars on Nate Diaz out of hope, certainly, and even less so out of optimism. Um, so I, I don't know about having the evidence because it, it feels like neither of them have, have much evidence because I'm not putting th down the thousand dollars unless I, I have evidence, um, in a, and not just a hunch and a feeling. But if you had evidence Let's say that you heard that um, 
whoever one of these two people are. I don't know. That's that Jake Paul. Yeah, Jake, the the one's name is Jake Paul, so you can use an actual example in here. Okay, let's say that let's say that you heard through some sort of investigative reporting that Jake Paul mm-hmm. hurt his wrist in sparring. You're, you're saying Jake Paul hurt his wrist? My God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what would be the basis for which you would think the other guy would win? And would you consider that to be a matter of optimism or a matter of hope? Um, neither. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem is that that news, once it gets out, it changes the betting line for, for everybody. So you, you once again, are, um, it, it depends on the severity of the injury. And if it's to his left hand, or right hand, actually both would be a problem. It just depends on how bad it is. And uh, so I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't bet at all because suddenly there, there would be more variables. Um, and, and when you're betting, you want to eliminate the variables because you're putting up real money. Okay, perhaps it's too early in the morning for you, but listen. Um, I, I know about a place called Hope. If you found out that the one guy had a hurt wrist, you would have reasons. Yeah. Th- this is an expression. You would have reasons yeah. for being optimistic. I'd have reasons to be hopeful. No, now, I think optimism sounds better in that case. It's a, it's a nuance. It's a nuance. Uh, I'm not comfortable with the word nuance. <laughs> but no one would have. No one would say I have reasons to be hopeful. They typically say I have reasons to be optimistic, because optimism <laughs> typically requires reasons. That's a good, good, good example. So I don't have any reason to be hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and so that makes it. That then begs the question. Mm-hmm. Is there any merit to being either? And if there is one more than the other, should that be what we strive for? You know, you know politicians say, you know, hope, a dream, and all this other stuff. And the question is, and in, in their, their uh, uh, the people who oppose them would say, you know, hope is not a strategy. Because, you know, the basis of that remark suggests that hope is something that's not grounded in anything. Whereas optimism is. So, so give another example of, of these because I, I I like the what you just said, but so, I mean something. I gave a boxing example, which is a little silly. I give another example to show these differences. Okay, let's just take it into the most generic way possible. If someone said to you, "I hope this turns out." And then someone else says, I'm optimistic that this will turn out. How do you respond to those two statements? Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to believe them if they say I'm optimistic. It, it's, it, it seems you're right that there's a little bit more behind it. And you, you tend to assume that they have their reasons, whereas hope you know, seems a little bit um, whimsical in comparison. Okay. So that so okay, so if we suggest if we if we say that optimism is for the sake of things in the future, that optimism is better than hope, 
can you teach something like that? Do you think you said yourself that you are a by nature a pessimist? Uh, I was joking. Well, <laughs> but, but uh, here's but here's the question: Can you teach optimism? Are some people just born to be optimistic? Are they born to be pessimistic? You know, this gets into you know Tabula Rasa and Socrates and all this other stuff, but. The idea is, do you think that, one, is it something that's within our DNA? And two, do you think it can be taught? Um, have, have you heard the story of the myth of Sisyphus? No, let's hear it. Well, <clears throat> I'm terrible at telling stories, but it, but it's a, a god, a Greek god that was punished Um for for something that I should know at this point, I'm embarrassing myself. But the idea and the image. Is this the that, thing about the fire? No, there's no fire. Okay, <laughs> maybe, maybe there's some fire. Settle down. Settle down. <laughs> there's no fire. Um, but he he was uh, fire. Fire. Quiet. <laughs> he was. He, I'm trying to give a serious uh, allegory here. He was. Uh, punished and his punishment was to be forced to push a rock up a hill eternally. And once he got to the top of the hill, um, the the rock, big rock would roll down and he would walk down the hill again and then start over and push it up the hill. And it went to eternity. And um, the philosopher Camus suggested at the end of his um his very short tale um, that um, that Sisyphus was an optimist, um, which is <clears throat> um, tricky, right? Um, after that type of a fate, um, why would he be considered an optimist? And the answer to that, um, he he explained, is that there there's a a moment, and it's not while he's pushing the rock up up. And thinking, I can do it. I can do it. Um, and and it's not when he is at the top and feels this accomplishment, kind of like Rocky, isn't that funny? Rocky puts his hands up, right? That's not <laughs> that's not it. That's not the moment either. But it's when he turns. It's the turn, and and starts to walk down. And that that's the moment uh, of optimism because it's his rock. It's his fate. And he has control over it. And, the, and so this is a moment of power as he's walking down that hill. And then he starts again. Um, so there, there's an example of um, existentialist um, philosophy and uh, the idea of optimism. Well, it should be noted that Camus, though, also is kind of credited with being either the founding or the main uh, purveyor of absurdism. Mm -hmm. I mean, where does absurdism come into this? I mean, is he really optimistic? Is mm -hmm. it something completely different? Is this something that's without reason, without uh, merit, that when he turns around, he's optimistic? I, I don't think so. I mean, this, uh, he, he, you know, it, it's an absurd example because you know, and that's because it's it's sort of dramatic, and you would not expect this conclusion to that. You would consider it to be tragic. 
um, that there's all this effort and then it's in vain. Uh, and then it starts over again and it repeats, but it's not a pleasant experience. Um, but, but, but he's suggesting that the idea of, of exercising your strength and your power, and then it, as you turn and, and you, you, that's when you reveal who, who you are and you, and that, and that, and that's your fate. And, and so, so I, I, yeah, I don't think that this is that that downgrades the, the myth or this version of the myth because you know typically it's presented as a as a tragedy as a tragic figure um, but he, he's turning it upside down as it were so we go back to kind of the question do you think that this is something that can be taught or is this something that is simply a, a byproduct of biology um can you teach someone that, to be optimistic? Yeah, I, th I think that in in a, a classroom, there, there there there's some of that. It comes out more in in athletics and anything that's performative, where, where you give students, you give people the chance to overcome um, challenges. And I think that optimism comes from this lesson that that students that we all need. Uh, again and again, it's it's that when you when you prepare, when you work, when you struggle, you you eventually become successful. And so, yes, I think that if you have repeated experiences like that that are actually challenging and not just silly, like and so much of what happens in a classroom is not challenging, you know, to anybody, maybe five percent of the students. And so the so in essence what happens could be working against that if they're just focusing on a grade and sort of superficial language that you can fill in on a bubble sheet. But the, the beauty of athletics and performing arts uh, is that you have a real challenge. And I think that uh, time and time again, repeat, uh, repeat would um, have a, the desired effect of building optimism, but an optimism sort of like Sisyphus where you can, where you have control. And I think the control is something that we don't always, you know, embed in, in a classroom. We have students sitting really as talking heads who do what we ask them, but they're, they're not asked to overcome like, like, like we're discussing now. Well, so I guess then the next question is how valuable is being optimistic in the face of being realistic. We're going to set pessimism aside because I think it's hard to make a, a decent argument for the value of being pessimistic. Although certainly there are people who make that argument. But one of the things that people will often say in contrast to someone that they encounter who is optimistic, they will say, well, I'm a realist. I take the world as it is. You know, they they not only declare themselves to be a follower of realism, uh, but they say morally it's of a higher value than being optimistic. Um, what do you say to that? To what should we put to your children? Um, to be a realist or, or an optimist. Um, it, it it feels like a a realist is 
it's not not that exciting a person we want we want people who are willing to take risks and um, I think that's the exciting part um, when when they're taking risks and, and willing to go out on a limb and try things and test their strength um, I, I'm not really sure how to contrast being a, a realist and apply it to to school I, I think that this um, I mean you, you mentioned being a pessimist and uh, in, in some ways that that has more intellectual weight um, because usually you don't just have a pessimistic attitude for no reason but you've, you've thought it through and you've thought it forward and um, I think if if we were honest in the in the long run um, we're all pessimists because we we know what's out there and we, we know the the, the final possibility and and so in, in that sense we're not gonna um, go beyond that and and then and then I mean this whole conversation bumps up against religion which which kind of opens that door to something else um, well, I think with regards to pessimism mm-hmm. I sometimes feel that pessimism is a bit of a cop-out you know where people suggest that you know, pessimism is an excuse for not doing anything. You talked about the idea that that on the basis of optimism, people will challenge themselves. People will open themselves up to new possibilities, new boundaries, new horizons. And that because of that, they may be able to break through a situation that the realist or the pessimist would say is not possible to break through. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so... To look at pessimism from kind of a moral standpoint, yes, it's a thought process where you look at a series of events and you look at the consequences and you say that these things will never change. But it's also used as an excuse not to do anything. And so would you consider kind of a flawed moral worldview? I think that um, optimism can, can be heroic. And and uh, I mean I, I think about I, I mean my my role as as a business owner um, there there's nothing but optimism I've never gone a month thinking that I'm not going to earn more and and make more clients the next month and if if it's a bad month I'm completely confident and it's and it's a optimism in yourself which is very different than optimism in the world you know, I'm not too optimistic about the state of politics and public discourse and i think we'll be recovering for about 50 years from what's happening right now (laughs) that's not an optimistic but i'm completely optimistic and confident in in what i can control and and in my own world um there there, there's no doubt at all you know and and so yeah i I agree with you being pessimistic and uh, is similar to being passive but um the, the the people that are you know making things happen are, are they may not be optimistic about the world but they're certainly confident in, in what that they can move move the rock well you think about um the idea of what is morally valuable mm-hmm. can you be optimistic without a kind of moral worldview 
can you be optimistic without a set of beliefs? Does optimism require, you know, this this kind of, I'm not saying an orthodoxy necessarily, but like a general sense of belief. Does optimism require that? I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, it, you can be optimistic for for a lot of reasons, but you know, somebody who's more of a pragmatist would would say it's based upon experience, and you have lots of reasons based upon you know what you've experienced personally, and what you've seen, and what you've read, and what you've studied. That the, these are going to be the outcomes. Um, so I don't think it's dependent upon um, in any any system of beliefs. It's something that you develop uh, yourself over time. And that's part of being educated and, and living and, and having these experiences. And then you, you gather information every day and every minute and, and you have a, and so it, it helps your betting odds because you, you've, um, you've been through some things and you've had struggles and you've moved past them. And then you realize, okay, I've done this before. Um, I, I, I think in the, in the future, this is, this, this is going to be the outcome. But doing something before doesn't require optimism. Having done something before, that doesn't require anything except for the repeating of what you did the last time. If we're talking about doing something for the first time, oh. talk, you talked about before that we were starting to go up against the notion of religion. So let's go up against it. I mean, was that comment to suggest that optimism in a general sense requires not maybe not like a formal religion but maybe a system of belief um it it depends on and we're talking about two two separate things here i mean we're talking okay. about short-term optimism as you're living and then the long-term more existential um outcome um but i mean in, in the short term all of these experiences i mean i could stop what I'm doing today and, and say, uh, I'm going to be a conductor. <clears throat> I'm going to, you know, that's going to be how I'm going to support myself the rest of my life. I'm going to go back, get the education in that area and, and in time do the networking. And I would be completely confident right now that I could do that. Um, and I know there's a lot of fields that you could just say based upon what you've done, Yes, I can. I can do this, and I can. And you could probably even do some pretty outlandish things that are outside of your experience because you know how to read and think and study and um, and, and and push yourself. Um, the other side of that coin is is the long long term. You know, is is there you know something beyond this life? Uh, that's that's a religious question. It's a metaphysical question. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, you know, having metaphysical optimism, uh, you know, is a more of a religious uh, notion. Was it Leibniz? Uh, who uh, I think that's how you say his last name, uh, L e i b n i z. I think Leibniz. Yes, yes. that you know, that talked about that we live in the best kind of situation. Oh, the best of all possible worlds. Yes, the best of all possible worlds. That God created a physical universe that applies, you know, these kind of 
scientific measurable type of laws. And so therefore that that is, you know, that was his notion of what defined optimism. Right. Yeah. Just right out of the enlightenment. Uh, I don't know if you, have you read Candide by Voltaire? I have. Um, so, so he, he kind of made, made fun of that notion by showing all these horrible things that happened to the main character and everybody in the middle of wars and famines and terrible things. Um, so, so that, yeah, the, the idea of the best of all possible worlds, it's kind of a, a truism it's difficult to argue against it right but then you have evidence of horrible things happening but you know you, you can't really make a claim well it could be better maybe um so what but what he does in candide is you know he's you know he says that because of the minutia mm-hmm. the whole series of things cannot be described as optimistic you know and so you can you can bury yourself in individual incidences or individual scenarios and say this world is shit or this world is you know that this that there's no redeeming value to say that this is that it this cannot possibly be the best of all possible worlds but that would be kind of ignoring a kind of a larger picture and perhaps it is a kind of a willing ignoring of contextual contextualism, the, the notion of what exists around the misery that you see at the very minute level. It doesn't change that something is miserable, but it suggests that in a broader context, that the reasons for optimism are still strong. the um so there so there so t- um, take that <laughs> well it, it it reminds me of of what nietzsche talked about amor fati the love of fate um uh, and, and and suggesting and really agreeing with you that you know all all of the suffering and it, it, it is worthwhile because it leads you to where you are now and you wouldn't have that if you hadn't gone gone through all the suffering i mean it um, Nietzsche looks at one moment um, that can justify an entire life, um, and, and even a, to justify one individual can justify history. So he's he's talking about um, you know the looking beyond the the suffering. I mean, we've um, we kind of demean the whole 20th century if we we t- talk about the lack of suffering that that happened, particularly in in well everywhere. Um, so it's 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 not a, a a question that we can address in a few minutes, um, but but I think we've been talking more more personally, and um, and I <clears throat> I would agree you know of an optimistic state despite some some pretty terrible moments, and and that's a to me that what Nietzsche says calls it all into question. I mean we we both had um, things happen to us that that have been really really challenging. Um, but still remain optimistic about the future, uh, despite that. I think, um, you know, part of my, I mean, I didn't get it from this, you know, but, you know, Helen Keller said that her optimism was not based upon the absence of evil. 
Mm-hmm. But it's just the, it's just those the understanding that there is good out there, and there will always be good out there. And if people are willing to kind of work with that, then that that's what's going to prevail. Um, you know, as a history teacher or a former history teacher, um, we've talked about this before. You know, people have asked me about the times that we're living in, and say that. You know, there's no reason to be optimistic. I said, there's every reason to be optimistic. Yeah, it's right right now. It's horrible. But it's been worse. And we've come through it. And, you know, maybe Helen Keller's and, and my attitude is based on the notion that there is out there people of goodwill, as I think there are. And if there, as long as there are people of goodwill, as long as, I mean, yes, you have horrible people, uh, most of them on Twitter. Um, but, uh, but there's it's also, not called Twitter anymore. <laughs> Miller. It's not. It's called, no, you changed the name to X or something like that. Uh, no. um, but anyway, anymore. <laughs> it's insensitive to call it Twitter. What? It's no, but, um, but the idea is, is that, I think that there are more people out there of goodwill than there are crappy people. And um, that's my reason for optimism. I mean, you see it every time. You see it every time that there is a natural disaster. You see it every time when when communities come together. You know, there's not this, um, there's not this kind of um, ferocious uh, attacking of one another. People come together. Um, now, I wish they came together and stayed together for a long period of time, and they have done that at various moments in history. Uh, but I still think that that's part of it. And so, you know, that I think that's where that optimism comes from. And I think, I think Voltaire, mm-hmm. as Voltaire was inclined to do, I think sometimes Voltaire went for the cheap shot. He went for the low-hanging fruit. And yes, you can go and see misery. But did you know that there is a happiness index? Um, <laughs> yeah, I've heard about that. Uh, in which they measure the happiness of a country based on what I'm sure are very complicated and scientific indices to then gauge how happy a country is relative to another. And they talked about the idea that inevitably the countries that measure highest on the happiness index are not necessarily just some exceptions, but not necessarily the wealthiest countries that some of these countries that exist at the top of this happiness index are actually quite poor. And, uh, I think that kind of goes against what Voltaire says, because it's not a focus on the here and now it's a focus on what's possible focus on you know what could be achieved what people are capable of achieving but it's also a a, a kind of a note to you don't need a bunch of stuff to be happy well now i'm looking at this ranking i mean the united states didn't do that badly i mean the ones ahead of us finland of course 
Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland, the, the usual. I mean, these are the ones with the good as education systems. Mm -hmm. Sweden, Norway, Israel, New Zealand, Australia, Austria, Ireland, Canada, Germany, and then there we are. Lithuania. I mean, there's some strange countries on this list. Yeah, yeah. I need to look at look at their 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 metrics for sure. Um, but I, but I, I, what you said earlier, I, I, I agree. I mean, the, the news is a terrible way to, you know, the evening news or the all day news, I should say now is, is yeah. a terrible way to judge the overall state of the world. Um, because it's their job to get people to, to show that there's terrible things happening and fear because that's what gets ratings. Um, so I, I wouldn't give that a lot of thought. Uh, either, but, but yeah, what, what you see talking to people in the grocery store and your, your neighbors and everybody, there's a lot of kindness. It's just, um, it's just not not great news on the TV. Right. Uh, uh, but um, th there's a an image from Schopenhauer because there is a pessimist right there. Yes, and um, it's a. Uh, I mean, you can read a lot of Schopenhauer and get a lot of examples, but this one is, is short and um, simple. And, and he, he gave the image of a, of two animals. And I, I know one is a lion and one is, let's just say it's a, who, what type of animal does a, a lion eat, say an antelope or something? Gazelle, yeah. Gazelle, let's go with the <laughs> gazelle. <Sorry. laughs> um, so is the, what what is more intense and stronger and more um, the the joy of the lion you know biting into the neck and eating the gazelle um, that that happiness or or the the terror of of the gazelle as it's being chased hunted down and and publicly eaten in front of all his friends <laughs> <laughs> I added that part. <laughs> But where so is the is the capacity for happiness or pain stronger? And I'm not talking now about animals; when I'm talking about humans. But you're also talking about two things that are instinctual: the notion of yeah. staying alive and eating, <clears throat> eating to stay alive, and not being eating to stay alive. You're basically talking about the same dynamic. Well, and, physiologically, we and also mentally, we. I mean, we worry. That's some, that's something that separates us from the animals. They're not thinking, "Oh no, uh, what's this going to be like?" They just they're right there, but we're not. You know, we're we're ahead of ourselves and behind ourselves all the time, and right. so we we're driving ourselves mentally crazy with all of this worry. And, and you know, I think the more self aware you are, the more <laughs> you're constantly in the state of worry. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a psychic uh, trauma that's happening constantly in addition to the potential bad things that it can happen physically. Hmm. Well, I don't know if we accomplished anything today. Oh, I think we did. That, that poor gazelle would think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would think about the gazelle in the same way that I think about it in terms of, you know, describing human behavior. I mean, who... <laughs> where does the greater motivation lie? Is it in not being eaten or to be able to be, to be able to eat? You know, I've talked about this in terms of human behavior, you know, who is more motivated, the person taking someone's home or the person defending their home. And uh, I think the latter typically wins out, um, you know, 
Golda Meir said, you know, the Israeli prime minister, that our secret weapon is that we have nowhere else to go. This is our home. And so uh, that's not the way into geopolitical discussions. But I think um, I think that that's the larger drive is to stay alive, to continue to defend, you know. Yeah. And so I don't know. Uh, Schopenhauer also went Buddhist on us after a while. So I mean, you you, you take so you take some of his. Uh, I often wonder just what to what extent Buddhist or pessimistic or optimistic, but um, you know. So he he took his own path, one that diverged a bit from Nietzsche, who was a student, I believe. Um, but perhaps it's for another episode. I think so, Herr Miller. Uh, I'm I'm enlivened. I'm you know, more. Uh, excited about the future after having this conversation. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm going to this incredibly exciting boxing match tonight, and I'm not betting a penny because I'm really confused now you know, <laughs> about the, the future. And um, but if but if you can't put money on the table, you're you're not an optimist, or or, or maybe just. Uh, you don't have the money to begin with. Right. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> well, as to the reasons why people don't gamble, I think uh, we can go into a bunch of different reasons for that. But but again, perhaps for another episode. I think so. Yes. I, I, I think so. Well, we we were able to navigate away from baseball you know, relatively quickly if you look at the content of this whole show. And I think that's a credit to, to myself. <laughs> you know, even though you disparaged me at the beginning of the program uh, i can't remember what you said something like you need to change your life that's how i heard it <laughs> i think you took a pessimistic view towards this conversation is what i think happened but uh i do but i but i was i was not mocking it um, <laughs> i was blessing it here miller well i appreciate you because it's a risk-taking behavior to bring something like that up um it's it's uh, more challenging than talking about how uh, desks should be arranged within an elementary school classroom. <laughs> so good for us. Good for us. All right. And so as we <laughs> as we strain our shoulders to clap ourselves on the back, yes. uh, we will uh, enter into Sally Forth through this uh, beautiful weekend of 107 degree temperatures, and we say so long and adieu, Herr Doctor Bourgeois. So long yourself, Herr Miller. Auf Wiedersehen.